today on Media Download. From Montclair State University and WMSC-FM, the latest on technology. Digital privacy is a concern. Streaming is king. It's trending now. And media issues. Let's start with the presidential campaign. The frontrunner is firmly in the lead in every national poll. What's the press's responsibility? I will not give him the credit he probably sought prior to this horrific and cowardly act. And top business headline news. It's online streaming versus Hollywood. Curated by your host, Meryl Brown. Hello and welcome to Media Download. I'm Merrill Brown, Director of the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State University. Joining me today is author, commentator, and radio host Monica Crowley, best known these days for her work on Fox News. Monica has been with Fox since the network's origins 20 years ago and joins us today just about a week after the historic and remarkable presidential election of Donald J. Trump. I'm particularly interested in her perspective today on political history and presidential transitions because among the fascinating things about Monica's background is her very unique relationship with former President Richard Nixon. She was hired by Richard Nixon in 1990 as an advisor and editorial consultant, worked on his final two books, and published two books about him after his death. She received her bachelor's degree from Colgate and her Ph.D. in international relations from Columbia. She's been an NPR commentator and has had her own radio show going back to 2002. Monica, it's a pleasure to welcome you to our podcast and to WMSC. Meryl, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Um, I want to start our conversation by reading uh, um, to our listeners and to you to remind you of something you wrote just a few uh, days ago. You wrote in your Washington Times column that Trump's election, quote, as the next president of the United States, is the most astonishing political story of our lifetimes, maybe ever in the history of the republic. The brash billionaire, the guy who's never done this before, just beat a fearsome, well-funded, and ruthless political machine, the sitting president, and just about everybody's expectations. That's a couple of sentences that take the breath away, away, and I guess your breath was taken away last Tuesday. (laughs) Yes, indeed it was, Meryl. I just I want to start with two very quick anecdotes for you to sort of set the stage for where I'm coming from and why I think the country elected Donald Trump as, as president. About two weeks after Trump came down the escalator in June of 2015 and announced his candidacy, I went on national TV and national radio, um, and in particular, I remember going on with Don Imus, who's a you know, longstanding shock jock, and everybody was having a good, hearty laugh about the candidacy of Donald Trump. And I remember very clearly I turned to them, including Bill O'Reilly on Fox News, by the way, and I said, stop laughing. Do not underestimate him. He can pull the whole thing off. And, of course, that provoked a lot of laughter and scorn. But what I saw happening in the country and the conditions that were ripe for a candidacy of the kind of Donald Trump, largely a populist kind of candidacy, what I saw overrode their reactions overrode traditional models and analysis. What I saw was that the man was different, the country was different, the time was different, and the feeling was different. Second quick anecdote, a week or so after that, I went to an event that was attended by card-carrying members of the global elite, people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg. And during this event, a major Hollywood power player came up to me, and I got the sympathetic gaze And I got the condescending tap on my forearm, and then he said to me, Monica, you're a smart girl. You can't possibly be for Donald Trump. 
in that moment, Meryl, I had to make a decision because prior to that, for the last like three weeks since Trump announced, I was intrigued by his candidacy, but and and wanted to support him. But I was part of the group of trying to feel it out. And should I apologize for him? Should I explain him away? What do I do? And in that moment, I decided to own my support for Donald Trump. And I leaned into this man and I said, "Are you kidding me? I love Donald Trump." And if I had a thousand votes, I'd cast all thousand for him. Uh-huh. That response completely disarmed this man, and he said, "Oh no, no, don't get me wrong. I hate her, meaning Hillary. I just don't know that I can get with Donald Trump." Well, Merrill, enough people owned their support of Trump and and got themselves to the polls on election day that Donald Trump just pulled the whole thing off. There are so many reasons for this, which I'm happy to get into with you. Um, uh, as to why Mrs. Clinton failed and why Mr. Trump succeeded in this, all the conditions across the country. But suffice it to say that Donald Trump running as not a conservative, not even as a traditional Republican, but as a populist, was able to do something that Obama tried to do in 08 and only succeeded in a limited way, which is redrawing the electoral map. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot to follow up on in everything you just said. Um, h- how did you feel briefly at 6 p.m. on election night? Well, I was over at Fox News, and I was actually covering um, the, the results all night from 6 p.m. when I first started on the air straight through 3.30 in the, uh, in the morning, the next morning when we called the race and the presidency for Donald Trump. Early that evening, literally at about 6.10 p.m., I went on Fox, and I told Megyn Kelly and Brett Baer and Chris Wallace that this had the potential to be a realigning election because there were so many cross-currents underway that nobody really had a handle on, not Mrs. Clinton, not Mr. Trump, nobody, that there may not be reliably predictive models for what was going on out there. And when I said that at 6.10, I sort of believed it, (laughs) but my my faith was wavering a little bit. And it turns out by the end of the night, um, and and ultimately when we got all of the results, that that is precisely what has happened. You have something going on, not just in the United States, but sweeping the Western world. You saw it with the Brexit results of the Leave, uh, the European Union vote, uh, succeeding. You see it in regional elections across France and Germany and Austria, and there's a lot more to come across Western Europe. What it is, in, in a nutshell, Merrill, is that the unprotected class, the people who don't have a lot of money, power, and influence, but are subjected to the whims and legislation and dictates of the protected class, the global ruling elites, and here I mean in the U- U.S., the bipartisan ruling class, you have a revolt of the unprotected against the protected because the, the ruling classes across the West are inflicting these things on the unprotected, whether it's mass immigration, whether it's destructive economic policies, bad trade deals, you name it. They don't have to live with the consequences. The rest of us do. And what you're seeing now across the West is the unprotected class standing up and saying, no more. So this is your argument, I guess, in the context of all the things that are being said today. Um, uh, She didn't get her vote out, Jim Comey, uh, uh, the failure of GOTV, uh, Clinton and, um, and the way she was cast. All of that to you is secondary to this larger global point you just made. Is that right? 
Yeah, it, it is. I mean, look, it didn't help the Democrats that they literally nominated the worst possible candidate in this environment. Mrs. Clinton is a global, she, she's a global elitist. She ran as a status quo incumbent global elitist at a time when those things are being rejected across the Western world. I think if the Democrats had put up somebody like Bernie Sanders, um, they, they may not have won, but it probably would have been more competitive. I think if they had nominated Joe Biden, he would have won. And what, what does Joe it Biden mean? would have neutralized sort of the average guy, the blue-collar appeal that somebody like Donald Trump brought to the game. And so they nominated the worst possible person for Mrs. Clinton. She had a corruption problem, an honesty and integrity problem, a likability problem. And, of course, she never established a clear vision for where she wanted to take the country or a compelling reason for her candidacy beyond, I'm a woman and it's my turn. Well, it turns out that most voters didn't find that persuasive. In the context of that analysis, though, Monica, how do you fit into that the fact that uh, Trump will be inaugurated without having won the popular vote? Well, we'll see, because there's still popular votes streaming in. Remember, Democrats have big states. They've got a New York and California, and they tend to run up the vote, the popular vote in those states. But we have a constitutional system. We're not a straight-up democracy. We are a republic. Founders gave us an electoral college, and unless and until somebody abolishes that, those are the rules of the game. So the notion of mandate would exist in the same way in your mind, no matter who won by a million or 500,000 votes? Donald Trump has a mandate, yeah, and like I said, he's redrawn the map. He put into place states that haven't been competitive for Republicans in a long time, like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Even Ohio is a little dicey, and boy, he just he ran wild in Ohio. I think he won by something like eight, eight percentage points, something like that. Donald Trump, the, the reason he has changed the calculus and now is changing the Republican Party is because his message was built on economic populism, law and order, strong national defense, and defeating the corrupt rigged system, which, by the way, is something Bernie Sanders got a lot of traction on. So there, this is what I mean about the cross-currents. Anecdotally, I cannot tell you, Meryl, I live in New York City, I cannot tell you how many people pulled me aside and said, I'm a lifelong Democrat, I'm voting for Donald Trump. These were union guys, cab drivers, um, doormen. I mean, people who have been union people their entire lives, and they're saying, you know what, I'm voting for Donald Trump because he's speaking directly to me about the issues that directly affect my livelihood. And that is, you know, the bad trade deals, the stagnant economy, stag, uh, stagnant job creation, stagnant wage uh, growth, illegal immigration, all of these things that directly affect their ability to feed their families and have a decent life for themselves. Donald Trump was speaking directly to them on that issue. Now, when I say cross currents, I also had establishment Republicans come up to me and say I'm voting for her. So that's why I said early on on election night that this, this, there, was so, there was so much upheaval going on that Donald Trump was riding the tiger of these changes, of this realignment, but even he didn't understand how it was going to shake out. Neither did Mrs. Clinton. And again, I don't think we've seen the end of this process. Now, among the, the historical uh, components of this that I really want to get into for a few minutes now is this messy transition that's going on right now. Transitions are always messy, or at least often messy, and this moment in time as the transition team settles in is often full of chaos and infighting and so forth. But this is particularly interesting and historic right now because the party in charge has many factions fighting for both the soul of the administration and it seems in some ways the heart and soul of the president-elect. What's going on now? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, both parties, I think, have civil wars going on because on the Democratic side, after a loss, and, and believe me, as a Republican, we dealt with this in 08 and again after 2012, where we're doing autopsies. What did we do wrong? What are we not seeing? Democrats are now doing this, too. And the, the Democratic Party, before I get to the Republicans, the Democratic Party is now Barack Obama's party. This is no longer the party of Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter. This is a far-left party. So the elements dominating the, the Dems are far left, and you have some countervailing forces. They're few and far between, um, but you have some countervailing forces saying, guys, we're going to continue to lose from here on out unless we can really speak to the, to the white working class and others that Donald Trump just spoke to here. So they have their own conversation going on on the left. I would say on the Republican side, it's going to be interesting because you have classic conservatives like the Freedom Caucus in the Congress. You have establishment folks like Mitch McConnell, who's going to be running the Senate majority. And then you've got the populists, a la Donald Trump and his supporters and the folks he's going to be bringing into the White House. So you're going to have three sort of competing factions but look, whenever you have, whenever you're in a party and you have just elected a president, the president is going to be the one calling the shots. He's he's the big gun. He's the guy sitting on the throne. So mark my words. Yes, there will be infighting. Of course, that's human nature and that's politics. But believe me, at least for the first year, certainly for the first hundred days, they are all going to be deferring to him, because it's his agenda that was on the ballot, his agenda that got elected in a sweep, and he will be setting the agenda. And they would be wise, I think, at least for the first year, to be following his lead. Now, if they've got, if they're principled conservatives and they've got a problem with, say, the, the taking apart um, TPP or, or renegotiating NAFTA, by all means, raise it. I think a healthy party should have those debates. But I do think, knowing politicians as I do, Merrill, they're likely to uh, defer to him at least for a while. Monica, I have to ask you about Stephen Bannon. Um, he is the subject of enormous media attention this week. Um, he is a controversial figure. Uh, his publication, Breitbart News, does a lot of things that people read properly as extreme and in some cases even bigoted. What do you make of his background and his role in a Trump White House? Well, I've known Steve Bannon for, for many years, and I like him very much. I respect him. He's a really, really smart guy. He's, not, he's, he's a war horse. He's not a show horse, so you'll never see him on TV, just as he did during the campaign. He's behind the scenes. He's a really smart strategist, and he's somebody who's totally anti-establishment. Um, so I think that Trump actually did something very clever in making his chief of staff an establishment guy, like Reince Priebus, who was heading up the RNC, and then making a countervailing um, uh, personality, putting a countervailing personality in Steve Bannon on the other side of that. I think a lot of the attacks on Bannon have been really unfair. I have never, in the years that I've known him, heard him say anything offensive in any way. Um, and I, he's not going to bring that to bear in the White House, certainly. I mean, he cares about the president coming in. He cares about the country. And I think he's going to be a very effective strategist. Last question, real quick answer, Monica. Who, if you could wave a magic wand, is the one uh, political thinker, political um, advisor type that you'd really like to see the president bring into the administration? You mean besides me? <laughs> well, I, I didn't know you were a candidate, but uh, th that would be interesting, Monica, yes. In addition to you. Um, well, you know,
know, there are a lot of great conservative thinkers out and about, but, you know, a lot of them, like Bill Kristol, burn themselves with Donald Trump by being part of the Never Trump movement and so on. I think people who saw Donald Trump's rise very early, like Newt Gingrich, who is a conservative intellectual, I would like to see him in a top position here. I would like to see John Bolton who is an extraordinary U.N. ambassador for the United States under President George W. Bush, I'd like to see him be brought in in a major role, whether that's Secretary of State, National Security Advisor. These are people who think about the country and they think about um, uh, the world and they think about America's place in the world in a very serious way. They also take no gruff. And you know what? That's what the United States needs right now. They need leadership, intellectual and otherwise, where the United States can regain its footing it's exceptional place in the world where our enemies know that we're not going to put up with uh, them running wild anymore, and our allies know that they can count on us, and we can get a growing economy going in the U.S. again. And I think those two names that I just pulled off the top of my head, uh, John Bolton and Newt Gingrich, I think if they play prominent roles here, I know I will sleep a lot better. Uh, Monica, uh, thank you. Uh, we could talk for a long time. There's an enormous amount to talk about as the administration uh, takes hold, and I hope we'll do it again uh, at uh, even more length. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Merrill. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about this episode of Media Download, you can email us at gm at wmscradio.com or call us at 973-655-3135. I'm Merrill Brown. Thanks for listening.